Welcome to the IFI podcast from the Irish Film Institute. I'm Stephen Boylan, and this is the fourth in our short season of IFI podcasts we're making available during the current COVID-19 outbreak. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can contact us on Facebook and Instagram at Irish Film Institute or on Twitter at IFI underscore dub. In this episode, we look behind the scenes of the IFI Irish Film Archive, which holds over 30,000 cans of Irish film heritage dating back to 1897. We'll also delve into the IFI Player, where you can find a treasure trove of archive film digitised and available to view for free wherever you are in the world. Later in the show, we'll speak to historian Katrina Crow about her favourite films from two of our most popular collections. But first, I'm joined by Cassandra O'Connell, head of the IFI Irish Film Archive, who is the chief guardian of all these precious items in the IFI vaults. Thanks very much for joining us, Cassandra. Let's start with the basics for anyone who may not be familiar. What exactly is the IFI Irish Film Archive and what would we find in it? The Irish Film Archive is the national film collection, so it essentially tells the story of Ireland through the visual medium from 1897 right up to the present day. Um, We hold all different kinds of material. We hold film, tape, digital material, but we also have a very extensive collection of objects and of documents as well, which help to flesh out that history a little bit. The kind of material that we hold, kind of things that you would expect to find in an archive. So I suppose people really think of feature films when they think of Irish film. But we actually have made a wide variety of genres over the years, different types, categories of film. We have a lot of newsreel in the archive. We have animation and our earliest animation actually is from the 1910s, the Horgan Brothers. We have a lot of documentary and public information films we would have experimental films. And one of our biggest collections or biggest sections is amateur films. So that would be non-professional production. I suppose home movies would be the biggest part of it, but there is also um, amateur fiction films um, and documentaries as well. And they're a really great insight into Irish history, social history. So the vast majority of the materials that you would have in the archive, they would have been exhibited in a cinema first, apart from the home movies? A lot of the material, yes, indeed. So we get films in a number of different ways. We would have agreements with Screen Ireland and the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland and the Arts Council. So they're the three major funders of film production in this country. As we don't have legal deposit in the way that many other countries have for moving image, we put in place our own agreements with these funding organisations to ensure that Everything that they put money into, so money on behalf of the state, is deposited with us and that we preserve it on behalf of the Irish people. So even films that don't end up ever getting to the cinema would come and be held in our vaults. And through the BAI and the film board, we also have a lot of television. So we're actually quite a broad range of material. It's not just film. So I presume then the format in which those films have come to you has changed in recent times where you would have always had a clean print that would have come through that you would have kept, but that's starting to migrate to digital now. It's one of the the biggest changes we faced in the last decade or so. Film and tape hadn't changed that much for a very long time. The mechanisms for both of them had really been the same for many, many, many decades. So we were used to dealing with 35 and 16 millimetre film and then various different types of analogue tape. Then around 10 years ago, both the 
television industry and the film industry started to change to digital. And also people at home. So people shoot their home movies in a digital format now as well. So we went from having really good systems and a really good understanding of the mechanics of how to preserve this analog material to having to really start from scratch and learn everything again. So we've really spent the last decade or so grappling with digital preservation and coming up with ways to make sure that the material that we take in in a digital format will last as long as the material that we have on a tape and on celluloid. You used to hear these kind of horror stories or these tales of back in the the 1920s, 1930s, where you weren't allowed to bring film on public transport because they would combust or they they could combust. Um, So tell us a little bit about how the film, for example, is stored in the IFI archive. I know I've been lucky enough to visit and it's very, very cold down there. Well, temperature is definitely, temperature and humidity are the two major friends of the archivist in terms of making sure that we, if we keep those regulated, um, material will last for a long time. With our tape and our film, um, we keep it in climate controlled vaults, which are kept at between 4 and 13 degrees, depending on whether it's our master collection. Um, which would be our major preservation collection or our access collection, which is material that we would retrieve for exhibition purposes. And it's kept at a slightly higher temperature. We would have air conditioning in the vaults that um, has six changes of air handling every hour. So it's quite um, an impressive system. And that's so that we don't have to use sprinklers. God forbid that there would be a fire in one of the vaults. Obviously, we wouldn't want to use liquid because that is going to damage the collections. So we have imaging gas, which removes enough oxygen out of the air to make sure that the fire is extinguished, but it doesn't damage anything. So we have six vaults altogether. We have a, a lovely new building that opened a couple of years ago on, on campus in the Mooth. That really is state-of-the-art, the best vaults of their kind in the country. And we also have a lot of material on site in used to street as well because we need to have access to material to be able to work on it to make it available to digitize it so that's something that we would spend a lot of time doing taking our analog collections and digitizing them because that allows us number one to make them available to the public but it also gives us a backup or a second a preservation copy in a different format which obviously is going to help us in terms of spreading the risk of the collections being damaged. As you mentioned there, the system is very impressive in relation to keeping the temperature just right and the humidity just right. So does that mean that the films very rarely come out of the vaults? And even and if they are coming out of the vaults to be shown, do they get damaged from purely being out of that environment? Yeah, well, every time you handle a film or you run a film through a projector, it gets damaged. So just the the very process of doing that, because if there's any amount of grit or dirt or even tiny bits of dust, it will scratch the emulsion, which is what film is made out of. So what we try to do now is we digitize the original film prints to try and preserve them. So that's like taking a snapshot of the film as it is now in the condition it's in. But thankfully with digital technology, we're able to actually restore or improve films that have begun to deteriorate over time. So films will get uh, uh, many different types of damage. They, they'll get scratches and they'll get dirt and emulsion will peel and crack, but then they also fade, like photographs that you may have, colour photographs from decades ago. 
if they're not kept in the right conditions, they, they fade and eventually they become a kind of pinky magenta colour. So we're able to now pull the colour back and a lot of the detail back as if we digitise the film on um, one of the scanner machines that we have in the archive. And that's been a wonderful thing for us because it's really opened up our collections. But we would try to limit the screening of original prints as much as possible now, just because of the damage that would occur. If we want to take something out to screen it, we have to acclimatise it because it would go into shot from going from a very cold conditions into room temperature. So it goes through a process of acclimatisation and that makes sure that we do as little damage as possible. The other thing to mention is that our projectionists are very well trained in how to um, handle archive footage. So they know how to make sure that the films will be at the least possible risk. So we wouldn't generally loan out archival prints or master material, um, but we're happy enough for it to be projected in-house. Is Ireland a bit of a treasure trove when it comes to amateur films? Do, we, do many people come to the IFI Irish Film Archive with materials that they found at home? They do indeed. I mean, our Ireland is slightly different to other countries in that it's not that it has more amateur film than other countries, but the importance of that material. So in other countries, there would be a rich heritage of indigenous production from pretty much the beginning of cinema. So from the 1890s onwards, you would have production in most countries. But I think because Ireland was part of the British circuit in terms of exhibition at the, the start of the last century, we didn't really make our own films. We inherited what was coming from the UK. And we also got a lot of Hollywood films because we were English speaking unlike other European countries where they wanted to hear material in their own mother tongue, they would have made films specifically for home audiences, whereas in Ireland we were able to, to get material from other countries that spoke English. So for that reason, there isn't really um, a major production history in Ireland up until really the 1980s, is um, when you get the first film board. So for that reason, the pockets of amateur production that occurred um, in the first part of the last century were really very important because they document what life was like in Ireland um, and are, are some of the only examples of Indigenous filmmaking. They are really, we consider them to be one of the absolute gems of the collection because they tell us so much about life in Ireland. We also have a lot of priests making films in Ireland um, and that was probably because they could afford the equipment. It was an expensive business to shoot film. It was expensive to get it processed. Uh, you had to send it to the UK. It's not something that most people could afford to do. The Catholic Church actively encouraged priests to make films. And one of the reasons for this was because they were quite concerned about the moral impact that Hollywood films would have on the Irish people. And they felt that instead of just railing against moving image as a medium, that if they adopted it themselves and co-opted it and used it for educational purposes and guardianship of the morals of their parishioners, that it could be used in a positive way and that would offset some of the damage from the Hollywood films that were going to mess with the morals of the nation. 
And the subjects of the, the films that Priest made, I know we'll, we'll come on to the collections in a bit. Um, we do have a the Ryark collection. Some of the films would have a religious theme, but a lot of them are just documenting regular aspects of Irish life. That, that's true. With Ryark, Ryark was a television series with Priest in front of and behind the cameras that was made for... They're an independent production company, but the, the films were shown on RTE from the 19, early 1960s onwards. And they did, they were interested in social justice. So while there is a theme of faith throughout um, all of the films in some way or other, a lot of them are dealing with social issues and social justice, looking at people's lives, um, both in Ireland and around the world. They, they went to, I think, 70 different countries, um, which is pretty impressive. And they filmed right up until the 1990s. So it's the longest running documentary series on Irish television, I think, by uh, quite um, a long shot. But other, I mean, a lot of the, the footage is parishioners and local events. So you have what we would consider to be a really good record of social history. I suppose the one thing to notice is that when people are being filmed by a priest, they're being filmed by somebody in a position of power. You know, it's not um, a, a normal situation. So there will be a certain amount of artifice, I suppose, in terms of how they behave in front of the camera. But even with that, it's still a really, really important record. And one of the nicer collections is Father Jack Delaney, who was a parish priest in the inner city, so around Sean McDermott Street and then later in Dunleary. And this was in the 1930s and 40s. And his footage is just a beautiful record of everyday life. So people in the streets, people at different religious events, school children, people coming out of church and you just get a really nice sense of what inner city Dublin was like at the time. That's actually a really lovely collection. I think what's really interesting about the Father Delaney collection as well is that it really emphasises how our own interaction with film has changed insofar as nowadays we take something on our phone, we take selfies and, and we're in our own films and we, we see them. Whereas with something like the Father Delaney collection, he would have turned up one day with a camera, he would have filmed some people, but they would never have seen it themselves. Absolutely. Or if they did, it would have been screened in the local parish hall or, um, you know, it might have been screened for small groups of people, but it, not in the same way that we interact. And also it would have been a very unusual thing so they wouldn't have been used to people pointing a camera at them there is a certain amount of um, trepidation with people coming out um, and standing in front of the camera or being pushed out of their houses into the road so that he can film them which is charming but um, it it just makes you realize how much we have become used to cameras being everywhere and filming a lot of what we do and as you said it's a, a very different dynamic Speaking of the way we consume content, uh, fast forward to September 2016 and the launch of the iFi Player, which was a hugely important development. Tell us a little bit about the iFi Player. So prior to 2016, the ways that we could share our collections really were through programming iFi International, which sends material to festivals and different uh, venues around the world. And then through the other work of um, Irish Film Programming, which is the department within the IFI that looks after the programming of Irish film. 
but you might have something screened once or maybe twice if you were lucky, but it really restricted the audiences. While it's wonderful to see something in the cinema, you can't reach the same number of people as you can, obviously, through a virtual medium. So we thought that with all of the preservation work that we were doing and the huge number of collections that we held, and also the fact that we were beginning to be able to digitize our collections and make them available, we needed to have a mechanism for doing that. So as part of our digital preservation and access strategy, we had identified the IFI player as something that we would really like to do to allow us just to make the collections available to a much broader audience. And we were also very keen that, unlike some of the other similar platforms, we didn't want ours to be geo-blocked. And the main reason for that was Ireland has quite a small population, but the amount of people who are of Irish heritage that are around the world is enormous. And we felt that we were really limiting our audience and actually doing them a disservice if we weren't able to make our collections available to them. So really it was about showcasing the wonderful material that we hold, some of the great preservation projects that we've done recently, and then just really opening up the audience and reaching all of those people that, you know, can't actually come in to any of our screenings. So if I go into the IFI Irish Film Archive and I pick up a can of film from 1962 and then later on I see it on the IFI player, Talk to me a little bit about the journey it gets from being on that piece of celluloid all the way to being digitised and on the screen in front of me. So when you see something on the iFi player, it's very easy to think that that's quite a simple process. Um, You know, we're all used to filming something on our phone and then uploading it. And it can be hard to think about the amount of work that actually goes into getting something from a can of film to the point at which you can see it on on the IFI player and it takes a, a big team of people to do that. The initial stages, I suppose, are that we decide what material we would like to um, program. So there's the programming committee who select material that we feel should go up on the player. So curatorial decisions are made around that. Then the process of evaluating the material that is held in the vault to try and find the best possible quality material. Sometimes we would have multiple copies of the same film um, and that would require one of the archive team to go through all the different copies and decide which is the best and should be prioritised for digitisation. We often have to do remedial repairs, so there might be tears, there might be cleaning that has to be done to the actual film itself. After that, it's a process of digitisation. So we have a 4K scanner and Gavin Martin, our telecine operator, he would very meticulously digitise the material, put it through the scanner, uh, which is very gentle. um, And then he captures really high quality digital image and it's done frame by frame so each frame is a different file so it's very laborious and then he would spend a lot of time going through and cleaning up adjusting the color and the tone and just trying to bring it back to uh, make it look as visually pleasing as possible but without changing it too much because we want to keep the integrity of the original film. So after that happens, we have our preservation copy and we need to make a much smaller version 
to go up on the IFI player because as you can imagine, if each frame is an individual file, that's a huge amount of data and you're not going to be able to stream that on the IFI player. So then we have to go through a process to get the file still in really good condition or a really good resolution, but um, much smaller so that it can be easily accessible. And once that happens, it's put into a space on our server where it can be easily accessed. And we begin the process then of designing the interactivity. So the, the bit that you get to see when you log on to the player and writing up the copy as well. We don't want to just be like YouTube and just plant the material up there and have people browse through it without any context. We really want to bring that curatorial sensibility that um, the programmers bring to the rest of the IFI program and carry that right through to the player. And I think that's what makes it different to maybe some other platforms that people may interact with. There is that curatorial aspect to it. And I think that that is really important. It's such an involved process. You and the team, you must really develop an attachment to the materials. We, funnily enough, we develop an attachment to the people in the materials. So what I find is if you're working on a particular collection and it could be anything, for instance, the sports films, so GAA films from a number of years ago, we, we put together a DVD of All-Ireland Hurling Championships and I got obsessed with the various different hurlers, even though they were from the 1940s and the 1950s. And I felt like I knew them at some point. And the same with amateur collections. If you're looking at somebody's home movies and you see people grow up in front of your eyes, you start to feel like you know the family. And if you ever get to meet people from that family, then you already feel like you have a connection with them, which can be a little bit strange when they haven't a clue who you are and you meet them and you, you've seen their communion and you've seen their wedding and you've seen their, you know, the christening of their first child and so on and so forth. But every collection that we work on, particularly for our big preservation project, and we've done a number of those recently that have then been launched on the IFI player. By the time they get to the player, we've probably been through several years, up to five years of work from, you know, starting the project, working, cataloging, digitizing, sorting through everything, um, and then making the material available. So by that stage, we have spent a long time with that footage and people are only discovering it for the first time. So it's, it's quite a strange experience when you launch something out into the world because we're in our heads kind of finished. That's the end of it from our point of view, but it's only the beginning of its second life out there with people accessing it. So it can be a little bit strange. Tell us about um, some of your favourite collections on the iFi player. What are your own personal favourites? I love the Roy Spence collection. This is a series of films made by a filmmaker in Northern Ireland, amateur filmmaker, and a lot of them have a, like a supernatural or a science fiction theme. He really was interested in 50s B-movies like The Blob and also did his own spin-off or, or take on Tales of the Unexpected as well. So they're really fascinating. Um, and recently we did a collaboration with David Garrity from Join Me in the Pines. He took one of Roy Spence's films 
and re-edited it for one of his singles, Feel So Heavy, and that's up on the player as well. And it's actually really, really interesting reuse of archival work um, and something that Roy was really pleased with. I mean, every collection that goes up, we've spent so much time with them, you know, they become your favourite, but Loopline, a part two, has just gone up on the player and that is work by the filmmaker Shay Mary Doyle and his production company Loopline and it's the second volume of a project that we did a preservation project with funding from the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland and it's just the breadth of material that Loopline covers is just phenomenal. This tranche has hidden treasures, which is based around photo by films from the National Museum of Ireland. That is actually a collection that we hold in the archive. And so they were made in the 50s, 60s and 70s, documenting old folk life and craft practices. Uh, and that's an absolutely amazing piece of work. I also love the Irish advert project. So that was probably our first big hit, so to speak, on the player. It was the first preservation project that we launched. Um, and it was so popular that it actually broke the internet. And it was just um, a really gratifying project because we had no expectations of how it was going to be received by the public. And we'd worked on it for a very long time. We knew the footage was brilliant. 1960s, 70s and 80s adverts from Irish television. So hundreds and hundreds of them that we digitised uh, and made available. And we really didn't realise that they were going to be as popular as they were. Uh, I think they were just like little time capsules or time machines for people and really transported them back to moments in their life from the past. And that is one that's really great fun as well, because you look at some of the footage and you just wonder how or what people were thinking. Um, and how they got away with it because times have definitely changed in Ireland so it, it's a really good one to delve into. Not all of the adverts I think you could say were politically correct. Absolutely not, <laughs> definitely not. And I even think... some of the projects you wonder, you know, um, we've changed so much as a society you don't really see adverts for who's and mastitis and all these agricultural products I suppose the way that you used to. I think some of my favourite ads are the ones, I think the people are walking through Stephen's Green and they're all happy and they're all smiley and then they start taking out a packet of cigarettes and having a, a smoke. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you do wonder. You do wonder. Cassandra Connell, thanks very much for joining us. No problem at all. All the collections Cassandra mentioned are free to view worldwide on the iFi Player at www.ifiplayer.ie and via the iFi Player app, developed by our tech partners, Axinista. We're going to have our own little ad break now. This iconic advert from the 1980s is one of the many you can see as part of the Irish Adverts Project on the iFi Player. Bring them back a busker, bring them back a treat. You know that every kid'll love the magic in the middle. So play it on a banjo or bang it on a drum. But bring them back a busker, mum. New busker from Jacobs, the great big chocolate biscuit with the sensational center. You know that every kid'll love the magic in the middle. So play it on a banjo or bang it on a drum. But bring us back a busker, mum. Two of the most popular collections on the iFi player include footage from the most turbulent times in Irish history. The Irish Independence Film Collection and the Early Irish Free State Collection feature footage taken by companies British Pathé and Topical Budget, documenting Ireland during the period of the Rising, the War of Independence and the Civil War. During this period, Ireland had no indigenous film industry, so much of the newsreel footage of the time was exported abroad.
As part of the centenary of commemoration, the Irish Film Institute received funding from the Department of Culture, Heritage and the Gaeltacht to repatriate selected newsreels from the British Pathé and British Film Institute archives. Historian Katrina Crow has been looking through the two collections and joins us now to talk through those which particularly caught her eye. Katrina, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Stephen. Pleasure to be here. When you look at the two collections together, they're really a fascinating document of early 20th century Ireland. They are, but maybe if I could say a few words about the the entire uh, operation here. I mean, the IFI is a, is a really wonderful organisation uh, and it has gone to great lengths to give us uh, fantastic online resources, not just the independence collection, but many other things too. And what is really striking about these uh, Pathé and Tropical Budget films is their quality. That it is quite remarkable, the detail. When you say high definition, most people don't really know what that means, but by God, it means it in these cases. You can actually see faces so clearly in fairly large crowds that it brings it right home to you. I've had a lovely time over the last few days looking through some of the materials here, and it is endless and addictive. So I've chosen a few from the Irish Independence Collection, looking first of all at the period before and during 1916. And there's a wonderful set of views of Dublin in 1915 called Dublin Scenes, which is actually quite famous because I think when IFI first put this online, that was the one that was most popular with people because it shows ordinary people going about their business in Dublin City. And it's remarkably like Dublin City up to yesterday under the, the, the rule of the pandemic because there's hardly any traffic. And people are wandering around the streets and, and crossing O'Connell Street and crossing College Green without letter hindrance. They have no problem. We see the different modes of transport that operated in the, uh, in the city at the time, including a splendid barge rolling up the Liffey at speed and chugging out steam as it goes. We see horse-drawn carriages, of course, which were a mode of conveyance of individuals and goods. Uh, we see lots and lots of bicycles. We see a couple of automobiles, but nothing excessive. And of course, most people are walking. It's also the city before it becomes destroyed by a series of revolutionary activities. Whatever we may think about the rebels of 1916 and the people in the Civil War, they had very little regard for the, most, the beautiful buildings of Dublin and seemed to make them their target. So there's the GPO looking lovely. There's the Bank of Ireland, which did escape largely from destruction during this period. But an O'Connell Street looking absolutely elegant, beautiful thoroughfare. You can see how lovely it was. So you get very nostalgic and you get very Joycean because it's, it's, it's a Joycean city still. It's the city that he left 11 years before. He came back once in 1912, so three years after his return. And there are so many things to those of us who love Joyce that are apparent from this, uh, this gorgeous newsroom. And I suppose what you can see really in, in huge detail, which is very striking, is that the Union Jack is still flying over the GPO. Absolutely. But you can also see, I mean, I had a misspent youth and went into a lot of pubs when I should have been doing, studying for my exams. You know, I noticed what's still there on the keys. There's a lovely panoramic shot of the keys. And the Bachelor Inn, which is still there, but where they've closed the upstairs room, which used to be one of the most beautiful rooms in, in Dublin, looking out over the Liffey with, with windows on two sides, was then PJ Kyo's bar, but it was a bar. And further down the river, what used to be the famous Waldorf Astoria bar and hotel, which is now Lanigan's, which is a theatre bar where people from the Abbey Theatre go to have a drink, was then Douglas's Hotel and Bar. 
And of course, it became the Waldorf Astoria, I think, in memory of Eamon Javalera's staying in the Waldorf Astoria in New York when he was over there um, during the War of Independence. So that's, there's continuity and there's change. There's all of that going on. All the advertisements going right up through the buildings, um, often bearing very little resemblance to what's going on in the, in the uh, ground floor, which are usually bars or shops. A lot of bicycle shops, I notice, which indicates the, the degree of importance of the bicycle back in those days. Flann O'Brien, of course, gave us the third policeman many years later to emphasize that importance. So all kinds of lovely social detail that you could spend hours analyzing on this, just this one, um, this one clip. What I find interesting about the clip as well is that obviously you have college green, a beautiful college green with all the cobblestones. You have the men walking around in their top hats. You have the car pulling up. But on the, the aerial view of the Keys and the river, what you don't see is the huge poverty that would have been in the areas of Smithfield and around Church Street at that time. You know, they're, they're, not, they're not making uh, social commentary. Yeah. They're actually looking at the city as, as a, in this case, the second city in the British Empire. And it was in nobody's interest to be talking about the dreadful, shocking poverty. And yeah. there was dreadful, shocking poverty in Dublin at the time. I mean, the slums were worse than anywhere in the United Kingdom than anywhere in Europe. And that, of course, has its effect when we get to both 1916, the War of Independence and the Civil War. People who suffer most as civilians are the people who live in the slums, mainly behind O'Connell Street, which becomes one of the major battlegrounds at the time, but also in other parts of the city. So we're not seeing that. We're seeing a prosperous Victorian city with plenty of commerce operating. And of course, it is also the administrative capital of the, the country at the time. It's where the civil service is based. We're going to hop across the water for your second choice, which, is, which was taken on St. Patrick's Day in 1916 and features uh, a Mrs. Trudenick presenting shamrock pins to the officers of the London Irish Rifles. Okay, the London Irish Rifles were um, a regiment that were founded in about 1860. And they are large, were then and later composed largely of uh, Irishmen who had emigrated to Britain or Irishmen who were second or third generation in Britain. Um, based in London, a, you know, very distinguished record as a, as a military force. Uh, what we see in this clip is their band. They play bagpipes. They have a big drum. They have a little drum. And they are marching to Chelsea barracks, I think to meet Mrs. Tredenick, who's who is a major fashion plate in her own right. She is the wife of Lieutenant Colonel Tredenick, who was the second in command of this particular battalion. Uh, the battalion's later history is that it goes to, this is St. Patrick's Day, so it's March of 2016. Uh, the battalion later goes to, to France, to the Western Front later in the year, and fights at the Battle of Luz, where 1,000 of them are killed. So there's, there's always this retrospective anguish when you're looking at pictures of young men who are uh, active during World War I because so many of them died. And in this case, Mrs. Tredenick, who's very flirtatious, it must be said, she does a lovely little back step with her foot twice in the clip. Uh, and she's smiling and laughing and kind of fixing the shamrock flirtatiously onto their um, tunics. Uh, and she moves along the line and gives them all their shamrock. And then at the end of it, there's one particular soldier who is just beaming with joy at this beautiful woman who's coming up to pin some shamrock on his tunic. And he's just heartbreaking. Uh, and you really wonder, did he get through it? Did he survive the Battle of Blues? Did he, did he survive the war? Is he all right? Because there he is in all his glorious innocence, enjoying this nice day out, 
getting a shamrock pinned on him by a pretty woman. And that's all he wants. He's happy. He's not thinking of any dreadful future. He has no notion of what the trenches might be like. So it struck me in that way that it's a sort of, I, I had the good fortune to work on PALS, the great production that, that went on in the National Museum in 1915, or 2015 to commemorate the Irish regiments that fought in, um, in Gallipoli. And you're, you were struck so much by the innocence and sense of adventure and even capacity to look forward of the young soldiers who went to fight in World War One. So this is a very poignant representation of that. There is such a, there's a lovely charming awkwardness to it. You can tell that people are still very unused to, to having cameras around them, but you can also tell there's a bit of, there's a bit of storytelling where there's obviously just one camera, but they cut to her doing it at different angles to the same person. And it, and it is a very, very charming piece. There's no question. Very charming. And I'd love to know what happened to her. She, she looks like an interesting woman. What happened to her husband was that he became a commander of the regiment uh, when the actual commander was wounded at the Battle of Luz. So he ends up being a very seriously important military man. And no doubt her fortunes rose along with his. We'll fast forward six years uh, back to Dublin and some incredible scenes for the funeral of Michael Collins. Yes, Michael Collins uh, lay in state in City Hall for a few days before his actual funeral, which took place on the 28th of August, 1922. And of course, it was probably the most shattering death of the Civil War. It is said that Eamon de Valera never got over it, the fact that Collins was, was killed. There are still conflicting theories about who ordered his death and who did it, and it's more or less settled now, but he was, he was shot, as everyone knows, in Bay and the so the, the clip begins with, with an image of his coffin with him in it and bandage on his head uh, in City Hall, Langan State, surrounded by various luminaries. And then we move outside to the crowds of Dublin. And it's overwhelmingly women and children who are trying to get in to see him. And they are pushing and shoving and have no sense whatever, no social distancing going on. It's all, let's see what we can get away with. And the unfortunate army people and police trying to hold them back. And there's a wonderful moment where a bunch of women and children just manage to escape under their arms and get in and bypass everybody else. But when you look at the queue, you're looking at mainly middle-class women and children, I would think. The children are, are, are reasonably well-dressed. Um, there's a lot of babes in arms. Some of them certainly uh, poor women with their, their children in arms, they're wearing shawls. But a lot of pretty well-dressed women and little boys and girls dressed in school uniforms and smocks and so on. And then, of course, the slum children, one of whom appears very early in the clip, uh, who's barefoot and is either selling newspapers or flyers to do with the funeral. I couldn't quite make that out. And he just looks at you quizzically through the lens. He's not particularly interested in Mr. Collins. He's there to either make money or to get into the, the frame. And then a whole bunch of his comrades appear later, a little girl among them, and they're just interested in being on camera. There are, there's a bunch of very well-dressed women standing outside at one point who, look, who are not bothering to queue, who look as if they're, they're going to get in no matter what. Uh, and then you have the, the funeral itself and the passage up Connell Street, absolutely very, very deep in people, huge crowds turned out for these funerals. And there's at least four of them on the, in the collection. The first being Terence McSweeney's when he's brought back from Brixton to Cork after dying on hunger strike in Brixton Jail. That was a huge event. And of course, Jeremiah Donovan Rossa, we have him lying in state, 1915, the thing that kicked it all off in lots of ways, masterminded by Tom Clark and Sean McDermott. 
And then we have Collins, we have Griffith, and we have from the other side of the Civil War, Pahal Brewer. What's interesting about every one of them is the vast amount of clergy involved, huge numbers of priests pouring out of the pro-cathedral and the other churches and going to the cemetery and so on, that we're reminded that, that Ireland, you know, the Catholic Church was on the up and up at this point, and they're already positioning themselves very carefully for what's going to happen when independence inevitably arrives, as, as a lot of them saw it. Uh, and also, I, I noticed that Arthur Griffith's funeral cortege is quite plain, but in the case of Terence McSweeney, there are gigantically elaborate floral arrangements on all of the carriages, including his own, with sort of floral crosses, again, very religious uh, symbolism in all of this. But they're, they're very solemn moments, and they remind you of the, the death toll of our revolution, which we often forget about, that it was uh, effectively 6,000 people, and that's on top of about 40,000 Irishmen who died in the First World War. What fascinated me about this film in particular is, obviously, it, it's called More Than Half a Million Mourners, and all the mourners who are standing on the street, they're very well organised, and they all stand in very straight lines as, as the processions go past. But behind those, what you have are people who are just going about their normal day's business. And I think that's kind of a theme that runs through all the films, is that you have these people who are just going about their lives in extraordinary circumstances. That's absolutely true, Stephen. And it's, it's true all the time that, that pe- life has to go on throughout conflict, unless you happen to be in the middle of a battlefield uh, or in severe danger or dealing with a curfew or all of those other things that can happen. People do get on with their lives. And there were, there were lots of people in Ireland at the time who didn't give one damn one way or the other, whether Ireland got independence or whether uh, the treaty or the anti-treaty side won in the civil war. They were just trying to get on with their lives and rear their children. Uh, and have enough to eat and have reasonable jobs, do the things that most people want to do. Um, And those people in the background that you so cleverly identify are those people. They don't care, or they haven't time to be standing in the street paying homage to General Collins, who was a highly romantic and controversial figure in the day, and very handsome, obviously, which is why there are all these women trying to get in to say goodbye to him. But there they are, getting on with it. And that, that is a a theme, again, that shines through a lot of these. You mentioned a lot of the women at the funeral were in their finery, and there was certainly a lot of finery to be seen at your next choice, which is the Sandy Cove Gala and Dunleary Regatta. I couldn't get over this. I mean, I just thought it was absolutely wonderful when I discovered it. I had no idea they had such a thing, ever. Um, so it's Sandy Cove Baths, which is very near the 40 foot, the famous 40 foot, which is sometime in 1923. But it's clearly the summer. The Civil War doesn't finish until the end of August 1923, so it's very likely it was still in operation. So here we are back again to that theme of people getting on with their lives while there's there's still conflict uh, happening. So this is a swimming competition for men and women held in Santa Cova Baths, and you've got shots of the, and they're mainly young men and young women. They're very well dressed. The ladies have much shorter skirts than we saw in earlier clips. Skirts are getting shorter all the time. We're We're moving into the 20s now and we're going to have flappers we're going to have the dropped waist and those lovely fringe dresses and bobbed hair and shingled hair uh, none of them has that yet it's too early but some of them look like great candidates for staying right up to date with whatever the latest trend might be um, so they're very well dressed the young men are sort of wearing dark jackets and white trousers smoking their heads off and having a great old time so they're all enjoying themselves And then we have a shot of the ladies' swimming competition. 
when there are what I would have thought were very daring swimming costumes for the day, quite form-fitting and generally not, I would imagine, approved of by any bishop or priest who might have had a look at them. But there's no sign of any of those here today. They seem to be very far away. And they all dive beautifully into the baths, which looks like a gorgeous pool. And then at the end, we see, of course, the guy who won getting his hand shook. What about the women who won? We weren't at that point yet, despite all the great feminism of the turn of the last century. But it's just glorious to see them all on a lovely summer day when there's still trouble going on in the country, enjoying themselves and having some fun. One last choice for you then is the trial of Roger Casement. I, I went into this because, I, I, like everybody, I'm fascinated by Casement. And there's a famous photograph of him coming out of Bow Street, dressed in this really beautiful suit. He was incredibly good-looking. He was very tall. And he's, he's a tragic figure in every sort of way. So I thought, maybe there's new footage on this that I, I haven't seen before. But no, it isn't the trial of Casement at all. It's a whole bunch of other things going on. And it's quite a long clip. So at the start, we get, uh, for a very short period, like less than a minute, People waiting outside Bow Street Police Station in the hope that they will see him. He fails to materialise and we move swiftly on to General Maxwell, the man who made all the disastrous decisions about executing the rebels and probably changed the course of Irish history more than any, any other single individual in many ways, that if he had actually behaved with more temperate consideration at the time, things might have been very different when it came to 1918. They might not have risen to the extent that they did. I'm not saying I want any of this to happen, but it's definitely a what if. So there he is, big large man that he was, inspecting the troops post-rebellion in 1916. Then we see General Maxwell with Mr. Asquith, the Prime Minister, with Lady Wimborne, who's the wife of the Lord Lieutenant, and who, who definitely takes, she takes joint first place so far with Mrs. Tredenick, her fashion. She's got a fabulous, what looks like a satin, outfit on her with an amazing amount of beautiful embroidery detail around the waist and a lovely hat and she's she's very cool so that all goes on and we're seeing more um saluting and firing and scraping and inspecting and then at the end we have a completely unrelated clip which is the soldiers after the 1916 rising collecting the pretty useless mauser rifles that were used by the rebels the ones they brought in in the host gun running which were not good rifles, certainly no match for what the enemy had at their disposal. So they're collecting up the rifles to display them to the, the, the public who are going to see this clip on the, uh, in the cinemas. Uh, look, we've got all their, their arms and ammunition. They also have pikes. They're gathering all this up, and suddenly in the middle of it all, a dog arrives. And there's nothing as lovely as a dog turning up unexpectedly in these set pieces. So the dog is on his way, as dogs were in those days. You'd often meet, I remember, when dogs used to run around Dublin uh, City on, not on leashes. This is not good, don't get me wrong, but it was fascinating because the dogs always looked as if they had an immense purpose in where they were going and they were not deviating from their path. This dog, however, deviates from his path and gets interested in the rifles and the soldiers and gets in among their legs a bit and then just gets fed up and buggers off to where he's going. It really is true for so many of the films in these collections that the devil is in the detail. Katrina Crow, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Stephen, a pleasure. All the films from this episode can be found on ifiplayer.ie forward slash podcast.
My thanks again to Katrina Crow and Cassandra O'Connell. Don't forget that all the collections and films on today's episode are free to view worldwide on the iFi Player and the iFi Player app. We'll be back next Friday. I hope you'll join us then. The iFi Podcast is produced by the Irish Film Institute. The Irish Film Institute is principally funded by the Arts Council. The iFi is a charity. For more information on how to support its work, visit ifi.ie forward slash support.